Our Old Covenant reading for the evening is taken from the book of the Psalms, Psalm 143, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 12 this evening, which is the entire psalm. The word of the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me, in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way that I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. We'll be reading through verse 31 this evening. The word of our God. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant David, whom you anointed, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to Psalm 143. 
is this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is our refuge and our strength. That's what the Bible says, and that is a great encouragement to us as we face the adversities and trials of this world. Nevertheless, what exactly are we supposed to do when the earth does give way and the mountains begin to tremble in our own lives? How ought we to seek the Lord so that he will be our refuge and strength in times like that? This evening's portion of God's Word, Psalm 143, is an answer to that question. It is a model for us for how we seek the Lord when our hearts are breaking and when we are being pursued by our enemies. The psalm begins with what at first blush might appear to be a pretty generic cry for help. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Now this is one of those passages where the difficulty of translating biblical poetry um, actually shows up, and it makes it difficult to know exactly what David has in mind at least in my judgment, uh, the English Standard Version and a few other translations are at least potentially confusing for what David is really getting at. For one thing, in this translation, David seems to be saying both that he is pleading for mercy, that is, he doesn't want justice, he wants God to give him mercy instead, and also that he wants the Lord to answer him in his righteousness. At least superficially, there's a tension between those two requests. The key is to realize that David is self-consciously approaching the Lord in terms of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace that the Lord has made with his people, with Jesus Christ, as the covenant mediator. Now we should keep in mind just how sensitive David would have been to the structure of biblical covenants After all, God had made a covenant with him. He was the administrator, as it were, the head of the Davidic administration of the covenant of grace. Regrettably, the translators of the ESV, along with some other modern translations, seem to be unaware of precisely how this covenant structure works. And therefore, they have translated these verses in a way that is potentially a bit misleading. So I want to give you a quick review about covenants. And you're not going to have to know Greek and Hebrew in order to be able to get this. I trust that when we're done, you'll see that this is actually there, right in the passage in front of you, no matter what translation you're you're using. Biblical covenants between the Lord and his people are like treaties between two great kings in the ancient world, or between a great king and a lesser king. 
In fact, that's what's going on here. Uh, there's an extraordinarily large gap, an infinite gap, in terms of authority and power between Almighty God and King David. And, and so when the Lord enters into a treaty with David, um, this treaty would have been known as a suzerain-vassal treaty, or as Meredith Klein so elegantly puts it, the treaty of the great king. Now, in these sorts of treaties, one of the primary things that the great king was offering as a benefit to the smaller kings was protection. If this lesser king was to get attacked, the great king would use whatever military force was necessary to deliver his subject and deliver all the people who were under this subject king. Here's the key thing. In such a treaty, both parties owed loyalty to one another. When one party fulfills his covenant responsibilities to the other, fulfilling that covenant responsibility would have been known as righteousness. Please store that away in your mind. It'll help you a great deal as you read a number of passages. Fulfilling the stipulations of the covenant, that is, being faithful to the commitments you've made, is commonly referred to as righteousness in the Bible. This will become important in just a moment. So when David finds himself under siege, he appeals to the covenant that the Lord has made with him. And he calls upon the Lord to fulfill righteousness, that is to fulfill his faithfulness to the covenant commitments the Lord had made to David, by delivering him from all of his enemies. Now, missing this theology, apparently, I'm, I'm not really sure, but it seems that way to me, missing this theology, the translators of the first two verses here, at least to my ear, have made it seem like David is crying out for mercy for his own sins. Right? That's, that's how I understand what they're, they're getting at here. And that would give the wrong impression I suspect that nearly all of you, when you hear David coming to the Lord, asking the Lord to show mercy on him, are asking him to show mercy on him for his sins. Well, David is quite aware that he's a sinner. Right? He understands his, his frame before Almighty God. But he is not coming to the Lord asking that the Lord would mercifully deliver him from his sin. He's coming to the Lord and asking that the Lord would graciously deliver him from his enemies. Let me say that again. That's really what I want you to have in mind as you're reading through this passage. David is not coming to the Lord asking that the Lord would mercifully deliver him, that is David, from his sins. He's coming to the Lord and asking the Lord to graciously deliver him from his enemies. Look at verse 1 again. The English Standard Version reads, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. The, the word that they're translating, pleas for mercy, here is just the verbal form of the word that means unmerited favor or grace. It does not assume any sin on the part of the person making the request. What it does assume is that the person making the request has no intrinsic claim on the person they're making the request of. Right? It's unmerited favor. It's a request that they would act graciously on his or her behalf. 
About half of the English translations simply use the word supplications, which is helpful. But we could render this even more clearly, slightly paraphrastically, but really, really a translation, if we um, rendered it something like this. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Please graciously act on my behalf. Right? That's what David is getting at here. To see how this fits with verse 2, we also need to note a second technical matter of translation. Don't worry, this is the very last technical thing I'm going to say in tonight's sermon. But this will help you if you get it. The ESV translates the last phrase, for no living thing, I'm sorry, for no one living is righteous before you. No one living. To me, that sounds like all human beings. But the Hebrew itself more literally says, no living thing. That is, it's not drawing attention to our uh, unity as being fallen human beings. It's referring to every single creature in God's sight. The holy angels, Adam and Eve before the fall. Any living thing in all creation has no intrinsic claim on God. That, that's the idea. God is the creator. We're the creature. We can never go to God and say, you ought to have done this instead. We can never go before the living God and call our creator into court and demand that the Lord act in a certain way. There's a useful image that brings out this idea. It comes from Jeremiah the prophet, as Jeremiah talks about the potter's freedom. Most of you will be familiar with this image. The Lord shows a vision of a potter reworking the clay in his hands. Then the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. See, as the potter is sovereign and free with respect to the clay, Almighty God, our creator, is sovereign and free with respect to everything. That's what David is reminding us about in terms of our prayer. We can never come to the Lord and demand that he graciously act on our behalf. See, if grace was required, it would no longer be grace. And if human beings could demand that the Lord act in a certain way, he would no longer be God. This was true even before sin entered the world. As our confession of faith puts it, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Right? So when God comes down to human beings and says, I know you're just the creature, but I choose to voluntarily enter into this relationship with you, that relationship is known as a covenant. And that's why, although we have no intrinsic claim, we very much do have something to plead before God, something of great value to plead before the Lord. It is what David cries out in the middle of these verses. In your faithfulness, answer me 
in your righteousness. See, the Lord has entered into a covenant with humanity. Um, The covenant he made with Adam we call the covenant of works. But what's in view here is the covenant that he made with the second Adam. With Jesus Christ as the covenant head of our people, of his people. The Lord has voluntarily made commitments to us. It is only because the Lord has entered into a covenant of grace with us that we can be confident that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And this covenant of grace tells us how to approach the Lord. We, in effect, say, Lord, you have graciously bound yourself to us and you have committed in your covenant to bless our lives as we seek your face. Please show that you are faithful to these covenant promises by delivering me from my enemies. Please demonstrate your righteousness by acting on what you have said. So the first thing to remember when we are praying in distress is that we are coming to our Father, who is a God of amazing grace, and we are asking him to graciously act on our behalf. But second, it is a wonderful and biblical practice to pray the Lord's covenant commitments back to him, calling upon the Lord to demonstrate his faithfulness and his righteousness in the midst of our current hardships. Now that may sound like an awful lot of theology and a lot of technical stuff to put up at the front of a sermon. But actually it's this theology that's driving David's prayer life. And it is this theology of God's covenant relationship with his people that will empower your prayer life as well. See, David wasn't writing psalms in a seminary library. David was writing psalms as his enemies pursued him to snuff out his life. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. The lament is brief, but it is poignant. We aren't told who the enemy is, but they are seeking to hunt David down and to destroy his life. Perhaps you're experiencing something like that right now. Uh, Certainly, I hope they're not literally seeking your life, but you have adversaries. You have people who are out to get you in one way or another. Or at least metaphorically speaking, you are trying to outrun adverse circumstances in your life and it feels like they're gaining ground on you and are about to overtake you. There is a darkness of soul that comes from this sort of adversity. David says it with great emotion. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me, my heart within me, is appalled. What do you do when you're going through such a dark night of the soul? Pray? Well, yes, pray. But what do you pray? That's what the psalm is teaching us. In fact, the psalm has already taught us to focus on the Lord's character, his graciousness, and his covenant faithfulness. Yet there's something else that will do our darkened souls a world of good. 
Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Verses 5 and 6. David prays. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. See, in verse 5, David remembers. Celebrating what the Lord has done for you to bless you and to deliver you in the past is a vital aspect of building faith that he will act for you for your good in the present and in the future. Let me say that again. Celebrating God's past acts of blessing you and delivering you is a vital aspect of how we build faith that God will be good to us in the present and in the future. Now, critically, we do not have to wait until the dark night of the soul or when we're going through the valley of the shadow of death to start remembering in this way. The chief thing we do to remember in this way is a method of building our own faith is to be regularly giving God thanks, right? You do that with your prayers. You do it with your singing hymns and psalms to him and spiritual songs. We do it through corporate worship. It turns out that the stream of regularly giving God specific thanks for what he has done for us is the stream that waters our faith and causes it to grow. What does David choose to remember in this time of crisis? Two things. First, David remembers what the Lord has done. And presumably this includes acts of his, the Lord's deliverance in David's own life and his past acts of blessing David. Although it could include acts from the more distant past from David's perspective. David could be thinking back and giving God thanks for delivering all the people of God through the Exodus. You know, that sort of prayer would go like this. Lord, you were able and willing to deliver all your people out of bondage in Egypt with an outstretched hand. Right? You were willing to do that to glorify your name and to bless your people. Surely you were able and willing to deliver me out of my current trials. Second, David remembers and meditates upon the work of God's hands. When we contemplate the Lord as our creator, um, that immediately makes us think of God's sovereignty and his power over all creation. And beloved, if the God who created everything is for you, who can possibly be against you? Then in verse 6, David gives us a beautiful image of praying in faith. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. As desperately as the parched land of the Middle East needs the rain to fall, David is saying, that is how desperately I want you, my God, to come and pour out blessings and healing grace upon my life. Now, for some of you, this is going to be a really important reminder. You are tempted in your prayers to pray measured prayers. Yet you want the Lord to help, but you're thinking, perhaps I have other options on the table. It'd be really good if the Lord helps. But, you know, if he doesn't, I can have option B over here. I want to encourage you to pray with greater abandon than that. To freely confess that your only hope in life and death is that you are not your own, 
but that you belong body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and to commit in prayer and say, Lord, I need you to help me. Right? That, that's what David is doing. I mean, look at verses 7 and 8, and you'll see this sense of urgency and this sense of utter dependency. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me to know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. There's an urgency and a boldness in David's prayer. He isn't simply saying, Lord, please eventually get around to answering me, you know, in your own timing. He prays, answer me quickly. Lord, I am desperate. I need you to act. Answer me quickly, O Lord. And then in verse 8, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you do I trust. This is a prayer of faith that comes from knowing the goodness and the steadfast love of the Lord. Do you have someone in your life that if you had a really significant issue going on and you called them up and said, I'm in trouble, but that person would drop everything and come to help you? I hope you do. Beloved, God is like that. Now, thankfully, God doesn't have to drop everything to come and get you. He can uphold the entire universe as he's meeting your needs. But he is just as truly eager to answer the cries of his people as we cry out to him day and night, to act on our behalf, to glorify himself by showing that he is a good and faithful Savior and Father to all those who trust in him. So David makes three requests of the Lord in rapid-fire succession. Deliver, teach, and lead. First, deliver. Verse 9. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Uh, many of you have heard me say this many times, but one of the things I appreciate about the Psalms, which is so different from much of contemporary music, Christian music, is the Psalms acknowledge that we have enemies. That's very real. There really are people in this world who don't like you. If you're in a position of importance, you're going to have people that not only don't like you, they want to knock you off your pedestal. Right? They're out to get you, to take your job, to push you around, to get what is yours, to make it theirs. I appreciate the psalms in that. The psalmists freely acknowledge that they and we have enemies in this world. We really do. But the good news is, is that the Lord is committed to conquering all of his and all of your enemies. That's what it means for Jesus to be your king in part. He is committed to conquering all of his and all of your enemies. Yes, our enemies very well may severely harm us in this world, but ultimate deliverance is absolutely certain. Verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Um, I think it's instructive 
But the psalm is not a cry for deliverance so that once we are delivered, we can simply go our own way. You know, think about that. The psalm is not simply a cry for deliverance so that once we are delivered, we can simply go our own way. Rather, the psalm is a cry for deliverance so that once we are delivered, we can be about the business of walking with and serving the Lord. David realizes he's inadequate for this task. So he asks the Lord to do two things for him. He says, teach me and lead me. Right? That's what he's seeking. He wants the Lord to both teach him his ways and to lead him in them. We ought to learn to pray like this as well. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. David prays, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. These two verses at the end of the psalm, along with the two verses at the beginning of the psalm, set the covenant structure of the entire psalm. How can we be confident that the Lord will act for our good and for his own glory? David tells us that we can have confidence because our requests are for the sake of the Lord's name. Our requests are an opportunity for the Lord to demonstrate his righteousness by fulfilling the covenant promises that he has made to his people. And our requests are an opportunity for the Lord to glorify himself by displaying his steadfast love. We can therefore come to the Lord in prayer with great confidence. Not that Almighty God will act like our butler and simply carry out our instructions. We are not praying, praying to a domestic servant. We are praying to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What we can be confident of is so much better than a cosmic butler who will simply carry out our instructions. We are praying to our Father in Heaven who will use our prayers to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that we could ask or even imagine. Beloved, your Father in Heaven loves you and He is for you. Your Father in Heaven has promised that having begun a good work in you, He will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Your Father in Heaven has promised that He will work all things together for the good of His people and for His own glory. And your Father in Heaven has promised to graciously answer the prayers of His people as we cry out to Him day and night. So go boldly before the throne of grace and pray the Lord's covenant commitments back to Him. Isn't that what Jesus has invited us to do? Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so, beloved, keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking, because he who promised is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.